Well, we are coming to the end of our series on Moses today, and I'm kind of glad because I'm tired of seeing his face on our worship folder every Sunday. It's just, you know, a few times is okay, but wow. But this is the end of that series, and I hope you've enjoyed studying the life of Moses. There's so much more that could be said, but there comes a time when you have to stop. I'm reminded that of the 150 Psalms, most, many, attributed to David, there is one written by Moses. Did you know that? Psalm 90. And in that Psalm 90, Moses talks about God. He says, we have dwelt with you. You've been our habitation, our dwelling place through all generations. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And you are the God that puts men back to dust. That's what it says in Psalm 90. God made man from dust, and Psalm 90 says he puts him back into dust. Psalm 90 is the one that acknowledges that our life is brief. It passes away so quickly. You sweep men away with the sleep of death, the scripture says. Our days are spent under your wrath. Our years are finished with a moan. Moses is acknowledging that there's a lot in life that is hard and tough. When do you think he wrote this? We don't know, but let me give you a couple guesses. Uh, My first guess is he wrote it in Kadesh Barnea after the spies came back and said, we can't go into the land because the giants are in the land. It's a good land, but we can't conquer the enemies. And so they disobeyed God's command to go possess the land, and God said, all right, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and the old generation is going to pass off the scene. And maybe that's when Moses wrote down Verse 12, teach us to number our days so that we might apply our hearts to wisdom. They were going to attend a lot of funerals after that. But maybe Moses wrote it 38 years later after many of the old generation had passed away and they come back to Kadesh. And Moses is commanded on one occasion to speak to the rock And the rock will bring forth water. So what does Moses do? He's upset with the people. He takes his rod and he smites the rock. And the rock brings forth water. And God says to Moses, because you did not sanctify me as holy among the people, you will not enter into the land yourself. Aaron passes away. Miriam had already died. And now Moses, so that none of the old generation get into the land. And maybe that's when Moses wrote these words from Psalm 90. You've set our sins before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. And all our days pass before you. The length of our days is 70 years, three score and ten. Eighty if we have strength. So teach us to number our days. So that we can live every day wisely. Live every day for all it's worth. Have you numbered your days? 
I dare say if you're 20 years old or 30, you probably haven't even thought of it. Because after all, you're pretty strong and things are going well. And unless you've had a near-death experience, you've not thought about that appointment that you must keep. It's appointed unto man once to die. If you're, you've moved into your 40s and 50s and the body's not quite working like it once did, you begin to think, hey, what's happening? Could this be what the Bible speaks about? Could this be me getting older? And you live in denial until you can deny no more. And you begin to think, man, maybe I better count my days. You get into your 60s and 70s and you see your friends passing off the scene and you attend more funerals than you do banquets and sporting events and you begin to think, boy, I've got I've to prepare for this time. It's extremely wise for all of us to count our days. Understand, we are temporal and our days are quickly passing away and each one needs to be lived in a wise way. But Moses is not counting days anymore. He's counting hours as we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 34 and we look at the death of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 34. Moses had led the people of God to the plains of Moab, just east of the Jordan River. They were probably only a few miles from crossing the river and entering into the promised land, first city, Jericho. But Moses would never go in. God would let him see it, but he wouldn't go in. So on the plains of Moab, Moses gave his farewell speech to the people of God. That's basically the book of Deuteronomy. And God told him, now I want you to climb up this mountain, and when you do, you're going to die. And so we come to chapter 34, and Moses begins the climb. Verse 1, then the Lord, then Moses climbed up Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. And there the Lord showed him the whole land. God gave him this panoramic view of the entire land. And if you go to Mount Nebo today, you'll see something like this. Hopefully when Moses was looking, it was a clearer day. But the haze will come in from the sea. And yet from that elevated position, you can see so much of the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then the Lord basically shows Moses, the important points by going counterclockwise. He says, I'm going to show you the whole land from Gilead to Dan. Now, Gilead is kind of to the right, a little north of where Moses is standing on Mount Nebo, but Dan is the territory, the furthest north in the land of Israel. And around Dan, you have the territory of Naphtali, Ephraim, and Manasseh. And then he mentions the land of Judah, which he would have seen straight away to the west. And beyond that, as the scripture says, the western sea we know know as the Mediterranean Sea. And then to the left, to the far south, the Negev. And the path that led down to Egypt. And then the whole region from the valley of Jericho, which was right in front of him. And in this picture, if you look in the lower right-hand corner, you can see the winding of the thin Jordan River. Beyond that is the land. Moses, I want you to see it. 
Verse 4, this is the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over it. Some Bible scholars believe that this is a very important legal situation, event that is taking place. For throughout the Old Testament, before someone would buy the land, they would see the land. It was actually a legal term. It's not just seeing the land for the first time. It's surveying the land. It's viewing it. It's getting a good understanding of its dimensions, just like you would in a deed written today. And so Moses might be playing the part, still as the leader of the nation of Israel, and he is seeing the land as it transfers from one peoples to another. But he's not going to be able to enter into the land. It's the time for Moses to pass off the scene, and I have to believe he was asking in his own heart, what kind of legacy am I going to leave? What kind of impact have I had? What will people say of me after I die? And this is a great question for you and I to ask as well, whether we're in our 20s or whether we're in our 80s. What kind of impact am I going to have? And what legacy am I going to leave? I imagine three eulogists. Stepping forward to give us a summary, a brief summary of the life of Moses. And the first one begins with verse 5. We know Moses wrote the first five books, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He wrote the first five books, but I don't think he wrote the end of Deuteronomy. Why? Because he's dead. Someone had to record these words, and it's, so, it's kind of someone summarizing the death and life of Moses, a eulogist. Verse 5. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone, the Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was done. And verse 9 says Joshua is basically installed as the new leader. So maybe this eulogist would start out by saying, you know, the life of Moses, how can I summarize it? Well, let me just mention to you, he really had an unusual death. He knew it was coming. Now, it's appointed and a man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. So all of us know that we're going to die. But Moses knew the day. Talk about counting your days. And God kept telling him it was coming. And then in, I think it's chapter 32, he says, You ascend this mountain, and there you will die. Moses knew it was coming. That's a bit unusual. He was buried by God. I think angels had something to do with it, but uh, no people. This was God's work. Also, the scripture tells us he was placed in an unmarked grave. No one knows where the grave is, and I think that's a really good thing. And Moses didn't die because he was weak. As many of us do, our bodies just give out. Not with Moses. In fact, 
He didn't live three score and ten or even four score as he talked about a normal lifespan in Psalm 90. He lived six score, 120 years. And even at that, he was still going strong. His eyesight was good enough to see all of the land and his physical strength strong enough to climb the mountain at 120 years old. He could have kept going. But God says it's time. He not only died while he was strong, but there's a very interesting verse that comes out of the New Testament that tells us angels battled over his body. You say, what in the world does that mean? I'm not exactly sure, but here's the verse. Jude 9. There's only one chapter in Jude, so this is verse 9. It says, even Michael the archangel, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses did not dare bring a scandalous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now that verse is there to warn us not to speak evil of dignitaries. And I don't think many of us take the warning. (laughs) Because think of this verse. Here's Michael, the archangel, who wouldn't even speak against the worst person, the worst being who exists in the universe, the devil. But he said, let the Lord rebuke you. It's amazing how bold you and I are then to speak so disparagingly of our dignitaries and leaders. Even though we're nothing like Michael and they're nothing like the devil. Or maybe they are. But it's no excuse. And yet in the midst of this principle that Jude is teaching, he just mentions in in passing that there was a dispute about the body of Moses between Michael and the devil. Uh, What do you think was happening there? Well, I think Michael, carrying out the commands of God, was putting Moses in an unmarked grave, and the devil, now this is just a guess. I can't even call it sanctified. It's just a guess. But I think the devil said, no, I want the body of Moses. For what purpose? Imagine how he could get people to worship that body. Imagine if we knew where the tomb of Moses was today. I mean, you walk into Jerusalem city today, and if there's even a hint that Jesus was there, if he was born in Bethlehem at this one place, if he was crucified at this one place or buried at another, there's a shrine, there's incense, there's religion. And the devil loves Religion without Christ. And if the devil can worship, get you to worship someone other than Jesus, he's accomplished his purpose for you. So there was a very unusual death. But I think the eulogist would also point out, as we see in Deuteronomy 34, in summarizing the life of Moses... His life was unparalleled. It was unequaled. Look at verse 10. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all these miraculous, all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials, and to the whole land, but not just Egypt, to Israel. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. 
And when I go to a funeral today of a godly person that I didn't know or didn't know well, and some eulogist stands up and says there are two things that make this person unique. Number one, they had a genuine face-to-face relationship with God. And number two, they had an amazing impact on the people around them. And I listen to those stories. And I often say in my heart, I wish I would have known that person better. What an amazing legacy to leave. And here it is, says the eulogist. Here's the summary of the life of Moses. He knew God face to face. And before the people, he proclaimed and demonstrated the mighty power of God. Wow, what a life. And yet I submit to you, that's like the legacy you can leave. A life of knowing God. And a life of demonstrating the power of God. Maybe not in the same way as Moses, but the same God. I can imagine another eulogist standing up. What is his legacy? The second eulogist says. Well, I think maybe the best way to summarize the life of Moses is to remember that he had three titles that were mentioned about him more than any other. He was called a man of God. You can see that in chapter 33, verse 1. Moses, the man of God. And by the way, this is the last title given to him in the book of the Revelation when it talks about the song of the Lamb and the song of Moses, the man of God. He's a servant of God. Look at chapter 34, verse 5. Moses, the servant of the Lord, died in Moab. He could have had the title Pharaoh in Egypt. Had he stayed. He had the title of the leader of the nation of Israel. But that wasn't his favorite title. How about this? Servant of God. I like that. And he's also called the prophet of God. Chapter 34, verse 10. There's no other prophet like him. Moses said there's going to come a prophet later who's like me but greater than me. And so Israel continues to look for the prophet greater than Moses. And I can imagine this eulogist saying, what I mean is that when we think about his legacy, Moses was a man of God. That means he lived a life of faith. He lived a life of a personal relationship with the Lord. He believed that God existed And he also believed that God was a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's Hebrews 11.6. Faith is believing God and believing that God is good and that every promise he makes is true. And because you believe those things, you cast yourself upon him. And that's what Moses did. So we read in Hebrews chapter 11, By faith Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter but rather chose to in experience affliction with the people of God. He chose to be called a Hebrew, a term of derision. He turned his back on the treasures of Egypt and embraced the suffering of God's people. How did he do that? By faith, because he saw him who was invisible. He saw God. He saw that this life ends. It's temporal. 
May we count our days so that we can apply our hearts to wisdom. And by faith, he led the people of God out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, right up to the promised land, by faith, Moses. Read Hebrews 11, and you will be impressed at how faithful and full of faith this guy really was. And that's a great legacy to leave. Wouldn't you like your kids... When they eulogize you to say, Mom was a woman of faith. I remember her reading the word. Dad was a man of faith. I remember him praying. And together, their godly decisions were based on the truth of Scripture. And by faith, they did what was right because they saw him who was invisible and they counted that he would bless. That is a legacy to leave a life of faith. He was a servant of God, which meant he not only did what God told him to do by way of his mission, but he obeyed the clear teachings of Scripture. He is a servant of God. In the book of Hebrews, Moses and Jesus are contrasted in Hebrews chapter 3. And of Moses, it says, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant who testified of the things to come. He was a faithful servant. God says, I'm calling you Moses. Moses says, I'm going to do it. And throughout the Exodus narrative, you'll read verses like this. Moses did everything God told him to do. Moses observed all the commands of God. He was a faithful servant. And that's the title he embraced. That's the legacy he leaves. But then he was a prophet. And by way of a prophet, Moses pointed to the prophet who would come like him, who was better than him, who would surpass him, and to whom all the people should listen. As a prophet, Moses did things that prefigured Jesus Christ. The stories that we've been studying in the life of Moses talk about Jesus. And we've seen the fulfillment of many of those clearly stated in the New Testament. But all the law of Moses really points to Jesus. That's the point. I mean, his life is aimed at doing the will of God and paving the way for the one who comes who's greater than he. Moses doesn't want to have a group of people who follow him as disciples. And yet, sadly, that's what happened. And still happens to this day. The disciples of Moses. You might be one of them. Moses wanted to point people to Jesus. And that's what his ministry does. In fact, we could go through the New Testament, and we'll do so in a couple different places just quickly to show you that really... The writings of Moses, it's all about Jesus. The scripture tells us after the resurrection, two men were on the road to Emmaus. Remember the story? Jesus comes and walks with them and they don't know it's Jesus. And Jesus unfolds the Old Testament to them and talks about himself. They finally arrive and get all the disciples together and Jesus says, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me 
in Moses, in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. By the way, that's the way to divide the Old Testament. The law, the prophets, the Psalms. And Jesus says, Moses wrote about me. So if you read the Old Testament without seeing Jesus, you're not reading the Old Testament right. You're not approaching it with a proper perspective. You need to read through Christological glasses. You need to have that view of Jesus and see him everywhere. And indeed, he's all through the law of Moses. The Bible tells us in the Gospel of John that many times the connection is made between Moses and Jesus. Like in chapter 1, verse 45. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And some of John's disciples went after Jesus. Philip found Nathanael and says, Come, we have found the one that Moses wrote about. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. He's a son of Joseph. And so the scripture makes it abundantly clear that they connected the prophecy of Moses, Deuteronomy 18, 15, with the person of Jesus. Right at the beginning of the gospel. Chapter 3, verse 14. You remember the story of the serpent on the pole? Jesus is the one when talking to Nicodemus said, just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, I have to be lifted up. It'll be a cross. And when I do, I'll draw all people to me. And those who look will live. Those who believe will be forgiven. The story of the snake is the story of the Savior. When you come to John chapter 5, the Jews were debating about who Jesus was, and they said, we know who Moses is. We're disciples of Moses. And Jesus said, no, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, because Moses wrote about me. Can it get any clearer than that? The Old Testament writings of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are pointing to Jesus Christ. And so Moses the prophet makes sure everyone knows about Jesus the Savior. In John chapter 6, the manna that came down in the wilderness, Jesus said, Moses didn't give you the true bread from heaven. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven, and it's a person. The true bread is the one who comes from heaven. I am the bread of life. Perhaps in the preaching of the apostles, it was fleshed out in even greater detail. Just a couple of examples. Peter, when he is preaching his early sermon, based his sermon on Deuteronomy 18. That's the text he preaches. And he quotes it. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet from among you. And he's like me. And you must listen to him. Moses says the prophet is coming. Peter says he has come. His name is Jesus Christ. Similar thing is mentioned later on in Acts chapter 7. But then the apostle Paul, he's put in prison and at the, during his ministry, he would go in the synagogue and he would debate, he would reason, he would prove that Jesus is the Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. Peter did the same thing. 
Now Paul is under house arrest and many people are coming to him every day. And this is what he, sa- tells, this is what he tells them. Scripture says from morning till evening he talks to them about the kingdom of God. And he tries to convince them from the law of Moses that Jesus is the Messiah. That's his goal. I wish we had more of the teaching of Peter and the teaching of Paul about this wonderful connection with Christ in the Old Testament. I wish we had the discourse that Christ gave to the two men on the road to Emmaus about how he fulfills all the Old Testament. But this is sufficient enough to show us that Moses was pointing to Jesus all of the time. And now, two portions of Scripture that show that Jesus outshines Moses. John chapter 1. You know this portion of Scripture well. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And when he dwelt among us, we beheld his glory. It was the glory of the only one, uh, of the Father. It was the glory that was shining through the one and only, sent from the Father, Jesus Christ, who is full of grace and truth. And then John says, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth, those come from Christ. By the way, I've been captured by that phrase, full of grace and truth. That's a good good description of the ideal local church. Full of grace and full of truth. Full means complete. It's like the two natures of Christ. He's God and man. He's 100% of both. I think, as a local church, we ought to be 100% true to truth and 100% filled with grace. It's not 50% of the truth, truth part of the time, and grace the other part of the time. It's not like they cancel each other out or balance each other. We need to always be filled with truth and always be filled with grace, which means it's going to seem like we're inconsistent at times. And it seemed that way even with Jesus at times. But he was the epitome of fullness of grace and truth. Moses brought the law that showed us our sin. Jesus brought grace and truth that sealed our redemption. He's far greater. And then the the writing in Hebrews. Moses was faithful in his house. But Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed him. Jesus is found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just like the builder has a greater reputation, greater honor given to him than the house itself. He's the one who built it. Every house is built by someone, and God is really the one behind it all. Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house. Jesus is faithful as a son over God's house. And the rest of the book of Hebrews proves How much better Jesus is. I mentioned that some of you are disciples of Moses like the Jews of old. What does that mean? It means you believe you can earn your salvation by being good. You compare yourselves with others and you give yourself a pretty favorable report card. And you figure since God must grade on a curve, at least... Divide in half, and the top of the class gets in, and the bottom of the class doesn't. I'm at least in the top half of the class. 
I've done enough good work that surely God would not send me to eternal punishment. Or you become religious and you burn the incense and you say the prayers and you attend the services and you do the rituals and you do everything that a religious person should do hoping that that will gain you the favor of God. I tell you, my friend, you are a disciple of Moses. And as good as Moses was, he is no savior. Jesus is the son. And the book of Hebrews says, Jesus is better the blood of the old covenant, animals. The blood of the new covenant, the eternal Son of God. The blood in the Old Testament covered your sin for a while. The blood of the new covenant shed on the cross wipes your sin out forever. Which would you rather choose? What is his legacy? We have time for one quick third eulogist. He says, you know, I think the best way to summarize the life of Moses might be to think of three mountains that were prominent in his life. The first is Mount Sinai. That speaks of the burning bush and this personal connection. It speaks of the law that he received from God that he faithfully proclaimed and wrote down for others. Mount Sinai. It's a good way to think of the life of Moses. And Mount Nebo. He finished his course. He kept the faith. He ended well. Yeah, there's the blip. <laughs> there's the sin. And the consequence that he couldn't get into the land. But he dies a death in faith as the servant of God and the prophet of God, knowing no equal. But there's a third mountain. And don't forget this one. I say... Mount Hermon, we don't know which mount it is, but it's the Mount of Transfiguration, some mountain in Israel, and the highest one is Mount Hermon. It was there that all of this, this thing of Moses and Jesus, is perfectly summarized. Jesus is transfigured. His clothes are as white as the sun, and there appears with him two men, Moses and Elijah, and the three of them are conversing. And the disciples are there, Peter, James, and John, and they don't quite know what to say. In fact, the Bible says they're so terrified and they're so afraid, but that doesn't stop Peter from speaking. He still says something, and it's kind of foolish, but Peter says, Jesus, it's good for us to be here. I know. Let's build three booths, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He might have had in mind the Feast of Tabernacles and the little booths that would be built. But here are three places, almost like shrines. Moses is there representing the law of the Old Testament. Elijah is there representing the prophets of the Old Testament. Jesus is there representing the New Covenant. And Peter says, let's just build three booths for these three great leaders. The Bible tells us that while he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. I am well pleased with him. Listen to him. This is the prophet you need to listen to. It was a confirmation of the prophecy from Deuteronomy 18. And then the Bible tells us that when the disciples heard this, they were face down, they were terrified, and Jesus comes to them and says, don't be afraid. 
And when they looked up, the cloud had dissipated, the mist was gone, the dust had settled, and what does it say? They saw no one except Jesus. Read those last few words with me. They saw no one except Jesus. Let's do it again. They saw no one except Jesus. That's the legacy Moses leaves. And so the last guy says the Mount of Transfiguration just summarized the whole life of Moses. Yeah, he was a great prophet who knew God face to face and he proclaimed the truth of God and he was faithful in his house but he was always pointing to Jesus and when the dust settled and settles and the cloud is gone, here's the message you need to remember. It's Jesus only and no one else. Let's pray. Lord, if there is someone here this morning who thinks that they can get into heaven by doing good works, may they see today that Moses is surpassed by Jesus and that though Moses gave us a good law, a righteous law, a spiritual law, no one can be saved by the law. The only way we can be saved is by trusting the one who died on the cross in our place and bids us come and believe to look and to live. May we see no one today except Jesus, in whose name we pray.